Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. We must begin to talk about medical marijuana with a sense of balance and a sense of science. Dr. David Gross is a psychiatrist in Delray Beach, Florida, who has done a lot of work in this area over the years, and he's agreed to give us some time to begin to explore this very complex and at times controversial subject. David, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Abby. It's such a huge topic that it can be difficult to find a good starting point. I think one of the things that is intriguing is that there are medical professionals who say it is not safe, and then there are medical professionals who seem to say that it is safe. How do we reconcile this gap? I think the best way to start from my perspective is that I don't believe there's any such thing as medical marijuana, and that is that marijuana is a plant, and it's the active ingredients in that plant that can be beneficial. Digitalis is a very important heart medication that's been around for probably 60 years, and it's made from the foxglove plant. People do not make foxglove tea, smoke the foxglove plant, mash it up, and make brownies out of it. They, in a carefully controlled pharmaceutical supervision, create the medication called digitalis from the foxglove plant. And there are lots of other examples of that, too, as well. And so I really think that we were all fooling ourselves into thinking that the marijuana plant itself is a medicine. The cannabinoid ingredients in the marijuana plant will be valuable, if anything, invaluable medications for a variety of purposes. My position is they need to be developed the way we develop all different medications with careful supervision and quality control and dosage parameters and studies that look at placebo effect versus real effect, etc. Until that time, I think we're playing Russian roulette with marijuana plants that are combusted or eaten as foods that are becoming more and more potent in terms of the effect of the cannabinoids and will have a negative impact upon our society. State by state in the United States, many of them are now allowing for medical marijuana. They differ in how they're actually being mandated, the rules that apply. So let's take one step back and let's ask a question. What, as far as we know, what does the cannabinoid do to the brain? Why is it a psychoactive drug? The cannabinoids, there are probably 60, if not more, different cannabinoids. And in fact, recent scientific research has demonstrated that there are cannabinoid receptors and naturally occurring cannabinoid molecules in our bodies and brain. And so nothing is ever new, whether it be nature or God's will. This is something that has existed for eons. And so what is happening is that the combustion or the eating of marijuana plants, we're taking huge amounts of a whole shotgun smorgasbord of cannabinoids. Who knows what it's all doing? Certainly we know that tetrahydrocannabinol is one of the psychoactive cannabinoids. I'm sure there are many others. It creates the marijuana high. That is what makes it attractive to lots of people on a recreational level. I am certainly not supporting that need to really separate all the different cannabinoids, look at them scientifically and understand which ones are helpful for pain, which ones are helpful for anxiety, which ones may turn out to be helpful for poor appetite, malaise, and depression. It's very hard when we hear a story about a young person who is having intractable seizures and the family reports that ever since they've been on a marijuana regimen that they're better. It's very hard to walk away from that. As a physician, when you hear this though, how do you process it in your head? If a patient comes to you and says, you know, Doc, I want to try marijuana. It's a, it's a tough issue because your heart goes out to these parents of children who have intractable epilepsy, and that can be a very difficult disorder to treat. Some individuals even have to go for brain surgery when the medications don't work. It's my understanding. It's one particular cannabinoid that is an effective 
so far. I don't know how careful the studies have been done and how much of this is anecdotal in terms of creating the oil of this particular cannabinoid and giving it to these children that has allegedly helped their seizure disorder. I would hope that it's being studied as we speak. But what's frightening as I hear you talk, and you do spend a great deal of time following the marijuana issues is that you really don't know if a study is being done. I think most of us don't know if studies are being done. Is there a sense as to why it doesn't seem to be capturing the interest of good pharmacologic researchers? Very good question. Because of my involvement in addiction prevention and education about that, I've learned, for example, that there are a couple of pharmaceutical houses in England that are currently developing cannabinoid-containing medications. I've not heard of anything in this country, and I don't know if it's because they've been scared away by the illegal aspects of marijuana, and therefore if they pursue one of the cannabinoids that they may get bad press, etc., or have to deal with government issues, etc. I would imagine there would be lots of money in it. So from a financial perspective, I'm sure the motivation is probably there, but I, I would not have an idea as to why there's been such a slow movement towards developing the cannabinoids. It may, be, may have something to do with the nature of the cannabinoids themselves and extracting them from the plant. You'd really have to ask a chemist, and it, certainly there should be a push to develop the cannabinoids as pharmaceutical agents. Given that it is a psychoactive molecule, how much do we as physicians and how much does everybody actually know about how it interacts with other drugs, other pharmaceuticals that the person may legitimately need? Do we have answers to how to mix this? No, and it's a psychoactive plant. Remember, there are all these different cannabinoids. So when you smoke a joint, you're getting an absorption of loads and loads of different cannabinoids on top of all the toxic byproducts of the combustion of the marijuana plant, many of which are carcinogens. Peyote is a psychoactive plant. Other than the 70s and some people now who still perhaps smoke peyote as part of religious ceremonies, etc., I don't see that people talking about peyote as a medicine. We don't talk about making medical-oriented mushrooms. I think there's a huge movement behind this, and it's been a presence for the last 40-some-odd years coming out of the 70s, and it's a political issue that had lots of spin to it and complicates the whole picture. But from a medical perspective, we need to talk about the use of cannabinoids rather than the medical use of marijuana. In fact, one of my colleagues in the prevention field calls it medical excuse marijuana, meaning that it's an excuse just to be able to get high claiming they have a cold or flu-like syndrome. And we need to do very careful studies trying to look at the states where this has been approved by the referendum how much we're seeing true illnesses treated with the marijuana plant versus individuals coming in with illness complaints and lack of proof of any true pathological process going on. What criteria do you think needs to be established as to inappropriate use of marijuana? And there's the use of the word appropriate has a lot of gray areas in it. Uh, it's all great. I was asked by somebody recently about my thoughts about the use of the particular uh, cannabinoid oil for childhood seizures if it got approved. And my recommendation would be that it would only be neurologists who are credentialed in the use of this particular oil who could prescribe it to children. And that brings up another very interesting topic about the mechanics here, because if a doctor writes a prescription, it it's not a prescription per se, it's a recommendation. And then that recommendation is taken to a dispensary and the physician has no idea which one's going to be selected, how strong it is, the dosing frequency, and all those associated topics. Your thoughts on that? I'll tell you a true story. I know somebody who has musculoskeletal arthritic type of pain, may have a disc as well causing some pain, who went to Colorado to get medical marijuana and brought with him an MRI of his back, 
went into the doctor's office. They took down the basic information, but the doctor didn't care about seeing the MRI or anything. Just took this person's word at face value and gave him a prescription for marijuana. And this person now flies back to Colorado regularly to get new prescriptions. Now, it's not regulated, and I don't know who's checking what. I mean, if we use the same kind of restrictions that we now use in the state of Florida for opiate prescriptions since the pill mill issue became such a, a bonfire issue in the state, you might have more control, but even then, who knows? I mean, I'm terribly concerned about what I've read about Colorado where they're creating marijuana-containing foodstuffs that are being sold supposedly in children tamper-proof wrappers but what's to stop somebody who's the age that's agreed upon to get the legal marijuana candy giving it to a 12-year-old? The ramifications are tremendous, and I'm really concerned for our society, quite honestly, more than anything else, because I think we're going to see ramifications that are tremendous. Sweden, about 15 years ago, decided to liberalize their drug laws, decided that human beings have the right to ingest whatever they want to ingest, and that the whole approach to the use of quote-unquote illicit drugs was archaic, and they liberalized it tremendously. A number of years later, realized they made a tremendous mistake and reversed the course they had taken because they realized what it was doing to their society. One of the arguments that hear frequently from the medical community is that this is not a benign substance insofar as the adolescent developing brain. And I don't know that this has received enough attention or that it is given enough credence. If you could explain a little bit about that. This is a very critical issue. I'm glad you, that you raised it because about 10 years ago, if not longer, a definitive article in one of psychiatry specialty journals on the adolescent brain and its predisposition to drug addiction. The immaturity of the adolescent brain, much more sensitive to the addicting quality of various drugs. Part of the human brain that's fully matured by the age of 13 is the part of the brain responsible for drug, sex, and rock and roll, the one that seeks pleasure and, and excitement. But the part of the brain that puts a hold on those things, the frontal cortex that plans, thinks, evaluates, and often postpones reward, is not mature until late teens to late 20s. Here you have a brain that's at risk for addiction in an environment where the exposure to marijuana and then other drugs is much more prevalent. It's a bad mixture. From a psychiatric point of view, and again, I'd love your, your thoughts about this, many of the people who use these types of medications shall we say, are self-medicating an anxiety disorder, a depression, a social phobia, and the like. I'm concerned that these people are not going to get any of the more tried and true regular traditional treatments and go straight to the marijuana. From a practical perspective in my practice, I see a lot of these individuals after they've become addicted to marijuana and have all the secondary effects of the addiction. And it's only after they get clean that they finally recognize that they did have this underlying anxiety disorder that they were self-medicating or anxiety and, and agitation and restlessness from attention deficit disorder or depression. It's only after the fact that they finally realize it. And many of them will say to me, you know, I lost five, six years of my adolescence and young adulthood because of the regular marijuana use. And many of these individuals are developmentally delayed psychologically. They hadn't had a chance to really mature at the level that they needed to because of the effects of their regular marijuana use. Which speaks to a very different category of folks than those who are having pain or nauseousness or the intractable seizures that we talked about before. There's got to be a delineation. And like you said earlier on, we need to study these cannabinoids to see what medical benefits that really exist. 
What would you do if a parent approaches you and says that their teenager is wanting to use marijuana, they've started marijuana, and the parents just can't get to first base because the peer pressures are so high that the kid's going to look at his parents and say, Mom and Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. It's a very difficult problem and really depends upon how well parents can put their foot down and make it very clear that, look, we know better. Regardless of what the pressure that you're experiencing from your peers is, we're not going to put up with it and we're going to get urine drug screens, etc. You know, certainly marijuana has been around. Not everybody who has used marijuana ends up being addicted to it. I don't think we yet understand the risk factors. Certainly it pays to take a look back in your family. If there's an addiction risk problem, that suggests a genetic risk, which would put the adolescent at greater risk than somebody without that kind of genetic risk. It's a balancing act. At some point, you have to recognize, gee, this is not good for me and, and this could create problems. The education needs to continue to develop. Years ago, we used to have two or three days of education for middle school and high school teachers on addiction. I used to give lectures back then, and I think the budget ran out. And that school is a terrific social arena to do some of the education. Education needs to include parents who are invited to this kind of program. There's been a lot of discussion in the news lately about how much money, how many dollars, millions of dollars of revenue that Colorado is getting this year that they didn't get previously, and it's because of the taxes on marijuana. There seems to be a sense that medicine is making a big deal out of nothing. A lot of people will listen to what you say, and they're going to disagree. There are going to be a lot of people who will say, I smoked marijuana when I was younger. I'm fine. No big deal. But we're saying something different. It's making a lot of money for the states, so it seems. But we, in the medical arena, and not all of our colleagues agree with us as well, that's what makes it even more complex, is how do we approach this? How do we not look like we're just being prohibitionist, but being scientists? Go back to that, because that really bothers me. I think the vexing problem is that the database is there. The science is there. If you get on the National Institute of Drug Abuse website, NIDA, there's a huge clearinghouse of scientific information about the medical risks of marijuana use. There isn't a lot of scientific data on the medical risks of cannabinoid use because there isn't any research on it at that level. It's just really the, what happens when you bomb the system and saturate it with various cannabinoids by you know, injecting or inhaling marijuana. It reminds me somewhat of how we knew for years that cigarette smoking was dangerous. And if you remember, in the 50s, there were commercials on television in black and white that were AMA okayed, where you have a physician saying that if you have a head cold and a sore throat, smoke cools instead of a regular cigarette. So a lot of this is political, and there's a lot of spin, a lot of money being spent, and it's the political, in my mind, and the spin that is making it difficult for science to really be at the forefront of this whole issue. What becomes involved in the, shall we say, whirlwind of, of the politics versus the science is the old argument that, well, alcohol, alcohol is bad. And you know what? People, they get violent on alcohol. Marijuana, they get sleepy. It takes away from the issue that it is still potentially a problematic molecule. Right. The only difference in my mind is that the alcohol certainly is a problematic agent as well, but we're going to discover, and I think the governor of Colorado raised this concern, that we're going to see many, many more car accidents involving marijuana. You have a car accident and somebody's been drinking, you can do a fairly straightforward sobriety test on the road and determine coordination difficulties from the direct effects of the alcohol. Marijuana is much more subtle. 
that it does affect eye-hand coordination and judgment and, and reaction time. We're going to be seeing a whole significant set of problems in terms of car accidents, et cetera, related to marijuana use because people are not going to seem impaired overtly. And it raises the question also of liability because they might try to argue that they're on a prescribed medication. Exactly. The question is, when you or I as psychiatrists prescribe a medication that can be sedating, we will talk about dosage and discuss with the patient potential negative effects of it. Does that occur with when people go to a dispensary for marijuana? I doubt it. can't imagine that there's talk about quantifying the amount of cannabinoids you get in your system from the high-potency marijuana they have now. All I know is that everybody has various choices of different types of plants, that this plant's good for this, this plant's good for that, and don't know that's based upon any science other than hearsay or anecdotal reports. It's a frightening proposition. I think if we were able to clearly state that there's no such thing as medical marijuana, that we'll agree that there are medical use of cannabinoids and they need to be developed, we'll be safe. But until that time, we're not going to be safe. I've seen in the last two years at least five, maybe six high school and college students with marijuana-induced psychosis. Very, very scary. It's something that we're going to have to get to. We'll come back and do another interview and we'll catch up on all these other topics. David Gross is a psychiatrist in Delray Beach, Florida. He has worked extensively over the years with addiction issues, prevention, and treatment. Dr. Gross, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Abby.